Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. My name is John Forsyth. I'm the vicar here at St. Jude. And a very warm welcome to you if this is your first week. We are delighted that you are here. I hope you feel welcome. And we do invite you to stay and enjoy morning tea. And this week, lunch. Uh, If you have joined us for the first time or perhaps the hundredth time, we are here looking at Mark 8, the end of this first chunk of Mark's gospel. And the big question we've been looking at is seeing Jesus clearly. And today that very theme comes to a very sharp focus, if you'll pardon the pun. 
Uh, there is a fantastic author called Ross Douthwat who's written a book entitled Bad Religion, looking at how we see Jesus in contemporary culture. And this is what he says towards the, uh, the front of the book. He says, every argument about Christianity is at bottom an argument about the character of Christ himself. And every interpretation of the Christian faith begins with an answer to the question that Jesus poses to his disciples. Who do you say I am? That's the question we're wrestling with today. Who do you say I am? And I think we have a tendency to do two things when it comes to Jesus. First of all, we like to put him in a box. In other words, we want to make Jesus safe and accessible and often for very good reasons. He's a complicated person. Uh, Secondly, we have a tendency to see Jesus as reflecting our own values. So if you're someone who is conservative, you might lean into Jesus' holiness, the fact that he spoke against sin. If you're someone who's more progressive, you lean into Jesus' love and the fact that he accepts all people. And we end up projecting onto Jesus our own beliefs and understandings about how the world should be. So we tend to place Jesus in a box, and it's a box that interestingly shapes our existing ideas and values. Well, today we see Jesus challenges both of those truths that we often hold. And we have two events. We have the healing of a blind man and Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And it might seem initially unclear how they're related, But as we look more closely, we'll see that they actually are quite linked and actually hold the key of Mark's gospel. They're kind of the centerpiece of Mark's gospel to who Jesus is, not a safe little box, but also how we are to follow him. So let's look at this passage. I've got three points. I always try to have three points. Easy for me to remember, hopefully easy for you to remember as well. Firstly, we have a story, a healing where the person doesn't quite see clearly. There is something strange with Jesus' healing power in this, par- uh, in this healing. In verse 22, we read that Jesus goes to Bethsaida and a blind man is brought to him, which makes sense because this, this man can't see for himself. Jesus touches him, touch is very important. And what happens? Well, the man is led outside the village. Jesus touches his eyes And he asked the question, do you see anything? Now, the answer we're expecting is, of course, yes, right? This is not Jesus first. Thank you for those who are playing along in the congregation. That wasn't meant to be rhetorical. Uh, Yes, right? We've seen Jesus do miracles. We kind of know, it's kind of, we know the answer. But there's also a a kind of loading up on this question. Uh, Around 800 years before Jesus, there was this great promise made through the prophet Isaiah that the time would come when God would save his people and restore them, and this time would be marked by miracles. Uh, Isaiah 35 verse 4, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, divine retribution. He will come and save you. 
Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. That's the expectation when God's saviour comes. And as we read through Mark's gospel, we've seen the lame man leap. It, it, well, he didn't leap, but got his legs uh, uh, fixed up in Mark 2. Uh, the deaf man, the deaf mute man in Mark 7. And here's the blind man. So we, we seem to have all the things from Isaiah 35 lining up. Jesus seems to be fulfilling them. What happens? He looks up in verse 24 and says, I see people. Hooray! They look like trees looking, uh, walking around. Hmm. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything. So Jesus heals the man eventually. He fulfills the Old Testament scripture, but for some reason, Jesus needs to have a double go at it. Is it a bit of an off day, a mulligan in golf? Has he not had his coffee early enough to get his healing powers ready to go? What's going on? Well, as we read on, we see this, this is not an accident. This is not Jesus having an off day. Jesus is actually deliberately making a point. It's a teaching point he's making as he does this two-part healing. It's about who he is and it becomes clear what he's on about as we read on. So first of all, there's the, the, the miracle of not seeing clearly. And then we have this big discussion around not seeing Jesus clearly. And we start to see why there is this two-part healing. We pick up the second part of the story in verse 27. Uh, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. That's about 80 k's away from where they've been. So it's not just next door, it's a bit of a walk. Now, on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, this question of who Jesus is has really dominated the gospel of Mark up until this point. It's been the big issue that we're kind of told to wrestle with as we read through it. And so now Jesus turns to his disciples and says, look, you've been with me for three years. You've seen me teach. You've seen me heal. You've, you've seen the words of authority I have over the spiritual entities. And he looks them into the eye, in the eye and he says to them, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? Now, the disciples themselves, by the way, have been wrestling with this question. And it, think, it seems like finally their eyes are opened to who Jesus is. What does Peter say in verse 29? You are the Messiah, the Christ. You are God's anointed king. The one that's been promised. The one who will redeem and rescue his people. It seems like Peter's got it. And then Jesus will outline to his followers what his mission will be as this Christ, as this Messiah in verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, 
That's Jesus' name for himself. Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And notice in verse 32, we're told that Jesus speaks plainly about this. There's no parables. He's trying to be crystal clear to his followers. This is my mission as the Messiah. I must suffer. I must be killed and rise again. That's my mission. And in fact, this is the first of three times in Mark 8, 9 and 10 where Jesus will outline his mission as the Messiah. Now, Peter, by the way, God bless him, finds this unbelievable and outrageous. You are the Christ, you are the Saviour, you you are God's anointed victor to defeat our, our enemies. You are not God's failure and loser. And so what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside, this is in verse 32, and began to rebuke him. Jesus, you're wrong. It's offensive. You're here to be our victorious leader. You can't say that you're going to be killed. You've got got your mission all wrong. Wake up. That word rebuke, it's not not having a gentle conversation. Look, Jesus, I think maybe, you know, that kind of where you do a... No, it's confrontational. Peter is riled up. Jesus has not fitting his expectations of a Messiah at all. Forget the box. He's not even in the same ballpark. The Messiah is not meant to die. He's meant to rule and reign. But then Jesus takes him aside and says, shockingly, Peter, guess what? You're the one who's got it wrong. And in fact, Jesus then rebukes Peter in the harshest way possible. Some of Jesus' harshest words that he ever speaks are not to his enemies, but to his closest follower. Look at verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Get behind me, Satan. Is there a more cutting rebuke to hear from the lips of Jesus? To someone who was so close, who had just called him, you're the Christ, the Messiah. One of the first disciples Jesus calls, that gives him a nickname, His name's Simon, gets called nickname, The Rock. The original rock is now called Satan. Why? Why was Jesus so firm in his rebuke of Peter, whom he obviously loves? See, the problem is that Peter and the other disciples don't yet clearly see who Jesus is. They have their own expectations of what Jesus should do and be. They have a plan for Jesus. Their eyes 
are half opened. Sound familiar? Jesus is saying to Peter, look, if you resist my plan, you die because you are resisting God. You are not setting your mind on divine things, but human things. Peter sees a half-truth. He is like that blind man who sees trees walking around. He recognises that Jesus is the Christ, but has no idea what the Christ must do. And that key word there, when Jesus describes his mission, is that word must, must do. Jesus didn't say, I will die. By the way, that's a promise I could make. It's not just a prediction. He's saying, no, no, it is absolutely necessary for me to die to fulfill my mission. And Peter and the other disciples don't understand that word must. They don't see clearly. They don't know what it means that the Christ must suffer and die and be raised again. So why is Jesus so firm? Why why is it a must statement? Not a maybe statement or a perhaps statement. Well, it's because of a profound problem which we are unable to solve ourselves. See, when somebody wrongs us, uh, even accidentally, it can, can be the case, it creates a debt that needs to be paid by someone. Let me give you an example. Let's just say you're a very kind person and you, you let the vicar borrow your car. I'm sure you'd all, you would all do this, right? It's a very relatable story. Uh, then, unfortunately, he crashes it into your house while returning it. It turns out he's not a good driver. Shock, right? He can't see clearly. To fix your house and the car is 100 thousand dollars there are two options you can make him pay the debt whoever he is it's theoretical remember john this will be a hundred thousand dollars thanks or and this is my preferred option by the way you can absorb the cost either by paying for the repairs to your car and house or living with the fact that your house and car are now broken. Either way, somebody pays the cost. See, forgiveness is always costly. True forgiveness involves suffering because the debt of wrong doesn't just disappear into the ether. Either you pay or I pay. And what we're being taught by Jesus here is that either we must pay the penalty for sin or he will pay the penalty for sin. Otherwise, somebody must pay. Sin always entails a penalty. Guilt and shame cannot be dealt with unless somebody pays. That's the must of sin. And the only way that God can forgive us in his deep love for us is for him to lovingly bear that cost himself. That is the must of the cross. That is the must of forgiveness. 
That is the must of Jesus' mission. This is really important because the vast majority of, of historians believed Jesus existed. In fact, there is not a professor of history who disagrees. Uh, John Dixon famously tweeted when it was called t Twitter. I, I can't even work out what we call the things now. Uh, he said, if you can find me a historian anywhere in the world, a professor of history, who does not believe Jesus exists, I will eat a page of my Bible. Not a single one. Not a single historian. They, they'd search high and low because who wouldn't pay good money to see John Dix need a page of a Bible, right? No, it's not a question of whether Jesus existed or not. That's, that's not the big issue. The issue is, who do you see when you see Jesus? He walked this earth. That is a fact. The question you have to wrestle with is, who do you see? Are you bringing your own little box to put Jesus in that aligns with your vision and your values? Or are you letting Jesus determine who he is? Do you see the one who has given his life for you? That, the one who said, I must go and die. That is what it means to see Jesus clearly it means letting go of preconceived ideas and wish lists and coming face to face with the real Jesus who at times is uncomfortable well he is God after all and finally we are reminded in this passage to see the cross clearly uh, the cross by the way has become obviously a religious symbol but of course we need to remember that for the first really 400 years of Christianity it actually wasn't a religious symbol for the reason that it was a symbol of shame uh, Cicero who was a great Roman philosopher politician and lawyer that's always a dangerous mix he said this Roman citizens should not think of the cross they should not speak of the cross because it is altogether too horrifying for decent Roman citizens to even contemplate or talk about that's the culture of first century crucifixion the cross after all is not just a means of execution it was uh, there are many ways by the way the Roman Empire could execute people it was specifically designed to maximize the victims shame from whipping along the route to the crucifixion to the stripping of every article of clothing, it was meant to publicly shame the person as they died in agonizing death over a number of days. For the first 400 years of Christianity, there was almost no art showing the crucifixion of Jesus. Almost none. Why? because it was so shameful and hard for the culture to understand. The most artworks we have are a bit like this one here. This is some graffiti that was uh, from a, a Roman, uh, they think probably a Roman guardhouse where, where the, the, the centurions, and it's uh, Alex Amenos worships his God. So they're having a go at this guy called Alex, who is obviously a follower of Jesus. There he is paying homage with his hand up to pay homage, open hand in prayer 
towards a cross and who is on the cross? A donkey man. That, that is the view of the cross. Something that your enemies make fun of you about behind your back or even to your face. It's not something you boast in, it is something that you're ashamed of. That's the culture we need to get to understand when Jesus says in verse 34, then he called the crowd in and along the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus is saying, look, I am a king on a cross. And if you want to be my follower, you need to be so countercultural that not only are you not ashamed of the cross, you are willing to pick up your cross. What does it mean? What is, what, what's, what's the image that Jesus is giving us here? What does it mean to pick up our cross? Well, he uses a similar phrase there, whoever wants to lose our lives will save it. Sorry, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. We've got it the wrong way around. Well, the word life there that Jesus uses is not just physical life. Uh, it's, it's kind of a category even broader than that. That includes your physical life, but it also includes who you are as a person, your kind of personhood. Your selfhood. It's actually where we get the word psychology from. But it's not just your mind. It's your kind of who you are, your true identity. What Jesus is saying is, if you want to be truly you, don't build yourself, your identity, your personhood on gaining things in this world. See, our culture tells us that our identity, our value as people can be based on our performance, our bank account, our marks, our jobs, our achievements. And every culture points to things and says, if you have these things, if, if you have the respect of your parents, if you acquire certain things, then you have made it. Then your life is valuable and worth a lot. And when you don't have those things, your life is worthless. And what Jesus is teaching us here is those things won't work. Verse 36 says you can gain the ultimate thing. You can gain the entire world. That's a lot of real estate, right? I own the world. It's a pretty presumptuous thing to say. But even if you did, yet forfeit your soul, your life. You can have everything this world can offer, but it will not fix the problem for which Jesus has come. Jesus says, I want you to lose that old self, that old identity, and instead base it on me, my cross, my gospel. And what he's saying is, there is actually nothing you can do, but I have done everything. The thing that is most shameful in this world, the cross of Christ, 
actually ends up being the most beautiful thing. And so taking up your cross means dying to self-determination, dying to your own agenda. You can't just have Jesus as your teacher, someone who gives you a set of theological ideas. He's saying, you know, Jesus, he must become your everything. Now, I've got a friend called Justin who drives a lot of the time with one hand because he likes to talk and explain. He's a, he's a talks way more than I do, which is terrifying. He likes to explain with his hand. But the problem is when he's not driving with one hand, he's driving with no hands because then you can really explain things. Freeways, B roads, A roads. Um, it's one of the most terrifying. It's really good for your prayer life, by the way, when, you, when you're with Justin. And I think when it comes to Jesus, we're really happy for, 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 to let go of one hand, right? Look, Jesus, you're in control, right? I've taken my hand off the wheel. But I can just, every now and again, if, if, if your agenda doesn't quite suit mine, I can just do a few corrections. But Jesus is saying, actually, <laughs> terrifyingly, Jesus needs to be driving, not me. It's no hands, Christianity. C.S. Lewis says it far more poetically when he says in mere Christianity, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your own ambitions and favourite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fibre of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have will not be given away, which is really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find it in the long you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. And so what we're being reminded of again and again as we come to the end of chapter 8 and into chapter 9 is that if you want to see who Jesus really is, we actually need to do what the graffiti says. We need to look to Christ on the cross. If you want to know who you truly are and how valuable you are in God's eyes, clearly you look to the cross. See, when we look to the cross with half-opened eyes, we see shame, we see failure, we see humiliation, we see defeat. We see it through the eyes of the person who wrote this graffiti. But when we see the cross clearly, we actually see glory and success and victory and a way of life to follow. When we look to the cross, what we see clearly is God's astonishing, selfless love. So pick up your cross and follow your king. I'm going to pray and then we're going to stand and sing a fantastic hymn that asks God to be our vision. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray 
that you would open our eyes fully to see who Jesus is. Not just a man who healed, not just a man who taught, but the Christ who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And Father, as we see Jesus clearly, may we so put to death the sin in our life, pick up our cross and follow you for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.